Hello, you're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, still in for Matt Chorley till the end of this week. Coming up on today's show, we've been talking all things Labour and how they should approach the prospect of a Rishi Sunak government. I spoke to the Sunday Times' Gabriel Pogren, polling legend Sir John Curtis and the Labour MP Ben Bradshaw. But first, let's do The Economist. It's a Thursday, so it's time to head tonight at the Marriott. Indy Knight and James Marriott are here to talk about why the noughties were so bad. The Columnists with Knight at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Time to talk to two of our very, very favourite columnists this morning. It's Knight at the Marriott. India Knight joins me. Hello, India. Good morning. I can't see you annoyingly. I can't see you either, but I can hear you. You're in my... No, I can, well, I can, see, I can see you. What a lovely kitchen that is. How are you? Um, thank you very much. It's uh, you know, make it make. It, I feel, I feel at, I feel at home already. And joining you as ever, uh, young James Marriott. Good morning, James. Good morning. Uh, are you? In, are I'm you? I'm not in, I'm not in a nice kitchen. I'm in my bedroom though, which I think is quite cosy. It's cosy. It looks completely Spartan. You don't even have anything on the wall. <laughs> I can see a bit of a wardrobe, but you're just, you know, you're yeah, just well, looming. I left the cosy bits out. Actually, it's cosy. It's cosy off screen. You do, uh, but this, You, you can't. You can't let daylight in upon the magic. You can't. Uh, <laughs> Breach your breach your girlfriend's privacy. I'd never ask you to do that uh, on uh, on Times Radio, James. Right, let's get let's get cracking. Uh, I've been waffling on for too long, and we won't we won't go straight to Westminster. Instead, uh, cut through the jargon and keep. Uh, yeah, well, instead we're going to cut through the jargon. Thanks to uh, whoever queued up that cassette in the gallery. Uh, let's head to Qatar instead. On Times Radio Breakfast this morning, Callum McDonald asked Tory party chairman Nadim Zahawi if he would go to the World Cup in the Gulf state despite disagreeing with its laws against homosexuality. I would certainly uh, uh, consider going because I think uh, it is an incredible celebration of football and bringing the, the, the nation together. No, because I will always be very clear uh, with my uh, Qatari counterparts that our policies uh, uh, are very different uh, uh, to theirs. And I would always try and explain why it's right to uh, you know, have policies, the ones we have in this country that I'm so proud of. The, the way forward is to, you know, through uh, our relationship uh, with Qatar to continue uh, to make the point, to continue mm. to to explain why it's right that uh, we protect um, everybody in our society. And yesterday, he's not the only minister to have uh, thrown his backing behind the tournament. Uh, James Cleverly, the foreign secretary, suggested that LGBT football fans heading to the World Cup should be respectful of the home nation and make some compromises. James, I know you're not a football fan. Uh, but this is, you know, surging to the top of the the news agenda. David Aronovich wrote a very good column about it in the Times, uh, as well. Uh, you know, saying that as much as uh, as much as you know, we're sport washing these uh, these Gulf states or other states. You know, the last World Cup in 2018 was in Russia. You, there's no getting away from from these uh, from these human rights stories and um, to what extent do you think anybody can can participate in this sort of thing without being seen to condone the human rights record of a place like Qatar yeah I mean it seems pretty horrific doesn't it I mean the other the other thing obviously is the treatment of migrant laborers in Qatar which which is really appalling and I mean and I know there's been an argument that you know the attention at the World Cup has brought to Qatar in the conditions of migrant laborers who are imported from, you know, much poorer countries in terrible conditions to build stadiums and water enormous gardens and stuff. The, the, although there's an argument that focus has kind of improved their living standards, 
the various reports that have come out of Qatar about their conditions are really appalling. And it's, it seems just very hard to separate this event from all that really horrible stuff that's gone on with the people building the stadiums and, you know, looking after the gardens. I, I find it hard to imagine how you separate those things, especially as we know so much about it. I don't know if you, when, when you know about it, I don't know how you ignore it and just pretend that this kind of horrific stuff hasn't gone on. Do you agree, India? Is it, should football fans take a stand at this winter and not not turn on? Because it's such a fixture of everybody if you're into football. Even, even if you're not, the World Cup is such a massive thing. Do you think... It's, uh, very difficult. it's very difficult to expect people to not turn on. I think that's kind of a bit of a big ask. I mean, to me, the... Uh, the, the, the great mystery of all this is why um, it's happening in Qatar in the first place. You know, we, we know um, about their human rights record. We know about their treatment of migrant labour. We know that there are the bodies and bones of poor workers buried underneath the hastily built stadia. It's absolutely appalling. So that's one thing. It shouldn't be there in the first place. You know, it should be in Germany or Belgium or Sweden or somewhere, you know, with a decent record mm. when it comes to treating people well. Um, I do think, however, that James Cleverly has slightly unfairly got it in the neck because he is the Foreign Office. The job of the Foreign Office is, is to, to be protect, diplomatic. Uh, uh, is, uh, yeah, protect, yeah. To be diplomatic and to protect uh, British nationals abroad and to get them out of prison if they find themselves locked up, etc. And he's saying, if you take this precaution, you're less likely to be locked up. That doesn't seem to me to be... Uh, uh, an LGBT phobic thing to say that seems to me like a really kind of it's deeply deeply unfortunate that this bit of advice is necessary but it doesn't seem like a wicked thing to say and I've been reading about what a wicked thing it is to say and I don't quite agree with that I mean you know you wouldn't go to the Vatican wearing a thong you know it's a kind of I think he's making that sort of equivalence rightly or wrongly um, and I think he's trying to be helpful and it's all sort of got a bit distorted. But basically, nothing should be happening in Qatar that we condone in any shape or form. And unless Nadine Zahawi turns up at the Games draped in a rainbow flag, then, you know, I just don't really see the point. Then whatever robust representations he's making yeah. in private are sort of meaningless. Uh, I, They're I, meaningless. I... And also the, Qatari, uh, the Qataris know, you know, this, the, the situation is the same in pretty much half the world. People know that Western democracies have a different approach to human rights, have a sane and kind and good approach to human rights. It doesn't matter. They don't care. They're not going to change their minds because Nadim Zahawi or anybody else has a quiet chat in private. You know, these things are deeply, deeply, deeply entrenched. And if we disapprove of those deep entrenchments, then we should not particularly we should not taint sport although sport seems fairly tainted anyway but you know we shouldn't taint sport mm. with dragging it to countries with such terrible records and that i think you're both agreed right let's let's head back in time two decades shall we james they're resurrecting the noughties you write in the times this morning a sudden yearning for the bland affluence of the 2000s is logical but let's hope it doesn't last uh i think you know we're a similar age james we both uh we both uh, grew up or came of age or came into full consciousness in that decade. Why was it so bad? I have, I have only fond memories. Yeah, no, I've had a, I've had a long grudge about the noughties. Um, I've long viewed it as, I think, quite a sort of bland, uninteresting, slightly pointless time. I think the most pointless post-war decade has always been my opinion. So I was really distressed to discover gradually recently <laughs> there's this kind of nostalgic 
re-emergence of the noughties. It's kind of become a nostalgic trend, noughties fashions, noughties music. All this stuff is kind of is kind of creeping back. And I'm very much against it. I've always disliked the noughties and um I, I'm not pleased about having to deal with them again. Do you think it's fair, India, that James is writing an entire decade off as the decade of, as, as he puts it this morning, Jade Goody, Vicky Pollard and Peter Andre? Surely that's a bit reductive. Do you know, really strangely, I don't actually remember the noughties at all because, right. because, no, because I had two very young children in 1992 and 1995 and I was just really knackered. I was looking after them. And I was just really, really knackered all the time. So all the fun stuff kind of passed me by because I was at home with young children. I remember Friends. I remember Jennifer Aniston's haircut. I remember Vicky Pollard. Probably best not to remember Vicky Pollard. Um, that's kind of it. Oasis, Blur. You remember what was on telly and what was on the radio. Yeah, it's really, really, it's really blurry. I couldn't tell you what people wore or what people ate or what their houses looked like or and it's completely sort of but I think it was quite a kind of benign decade wasn't mm. it people were quite cheerful apart from James people were affluent people uh, were the economy affluent. the people the economy was growing uh, uh we yet later. well uh, you know there was the war on terror I think uh, James but otherwise you know it was seen the time of uh, seen the time of stability compared to now is is the blandness and the sort of indistinctness uh, Indy describes sort of the point in your eyes that it was sort of a, a nothingy decade. Yeah, that's always been my that's always been my prejudice against it. I mean, obviously, you know, I acknowledge that making sweeping uh, negative generalizations about an entire decade, you know, there are obviously holes one can pick in an argument like that. But this was an argument about culture during the noughties, which I just think it's left us so little that is really distinctive. You know, I think when you think about the seventies or the sixties, obviously, or the eighties, they, those decades left us really kind of powerful, memorable, distinctive music that sort of grew out of its era and, you know, will be listened to forever. I, I'm quite skeptical of how much of that stuff will remain from the noughties. Obviously, you know, the affluence is wonderful. Everyone was very happy. Perhaps India was, you know, whether or not she remembers it. Um, but I just, I just think, Culturally, it was a really sort of unexceptional, uninteresting time. And in my article, I was kind of saying it has this feeling of being a little bit kind of hung between the 20th century and the 21st century. And it's this sort of, I don't know, it's this weird sort of cultural dead spot, you know. I, I think, I don't think many, many noughties musicians are going to last, for example, particularly long, you know, the possible exception of, you know, perhaps the Arctic Monkeys, but. You know, beyond that, I think there's not an awful lot that will survive from that time. Well, James, you've successfully buried that decade. Unfortunately, we're running out of time for this hour, so I'm going to have to leave you both hanging there. Sorry uh, to cut our discussion short. Well, that was Indian Night and James Marriott there. You can read them both in The Times and Sunday Times by getting yourself a subscription. We do have a sale on, offering you your first three months for just a quid. Just head to The Times website to find out more. But now it's time to chat all things Labour and what they need to do next. You're listening to Patrick Maguire in for Matt Chorley on the Redbox podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Well, can they? That is the big question. Facing Sir Keir Starmer as he welcomes his third Prime Minister in three months. Have Labour got the measure of Rishi Sunak or is the new Tory leader the man to overturn 
that 30-something poll lead and get the Tories back into contention in 2024? These are the questions animating the Labour leaders' top team as they adjust to yet another Prime Minister. Some on the opposition benches are telling themselves that the next election is unlosable, even as their leader warns his shadow cabinet that now is not the time for complacency. It is clear, though, that he thinks he's worked out the Prime Minister's weaknesses, as evidenced by this dig at his wealth in the Commons yesterday. I'm surprised he's still defending non-DOM status. He pretends he's on the side of working people. But in private, he says something very different. Over the summer, he was secretly recorded at a garden party in Tunbridge Wells, boasting to a group of Tory members that he personally moved money away from deprived areas to wealthy places instead. Rather than apologise or pretend that he meant something else, why doesn't he now do the right thing and undo the changes that he made to those funding formulas? Well, uh, Mr Speaker, I know... I know... I, I, I know the right... I know the right, honourable gentleman, rarely leaves North London. But if he does... But if he, if he does, he will know that there are deprived areas in our rural communities, in our coastal communities, and across the South, and this government will relentlessly support them. Well... Keir Starmer wants to cast Rishi Sunak not as the unifier or steady hand he has sold himself to his party and the public, but more of a prisoner of as much a chaotic bunch of MPs as his predecessor, Liz Truss. Even his own side know he's not on the side of working people. That's why the only time he ran in a competitive election, he got trounced by the former Prime Minister, who herself got beaten by a lettuce. (laughs) So why doesn't he put it to the test... Let working people have their say and call a general election. Mr Speaker, he talks about mandates, about votes, about elections. It's a bit rich coming from the person who tried to overturn the biggest democratic vote in our country's history. Our our mandate is based on the manifesto that we were elected on to remind him an election that we won and they lost. Fair to say Rishi Sunak thinks he's got the measure of Keir Starmer to ask Labour what their own plan for the economy is and whether they'll support whatever tax rises and spending cuts Sunak and Jeremy Hunt bring forward. That's one of their own big weaknesses. The answer is rarely satisfying, as I found out when I spoke to Annalise Dodds, the Labour chairwoman, on this show earlier this week. Well, I think the Conservatives should see the moral argument for an election. If they don't, we'll continue to do what we have been doing, which is to urge the government to change tack, to focus on that cost of living crisis. We've set out plans in our Green Prosperity Plan, very clear measures that could be taken to generate the jobs that we need to see up and down the country, make sure we have that energy security for the future and get bills down, not just this year, but in every year up to the end of the decade. You know, really clear measures that Labour has been setting out also to get our high streets active again, getting rid of that business rates regime, other policies that the Conservatives should be adopting. I'm afraid I'm not hearing any of that at the moment from Rishi Sunak. We obviously heard the complete opposite from Liz Truss as well in her few weeks as Prime Minister, and we just didn't see that delivery from Boris Johnson either. In fact, life for most people got harder 
under Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. And I expect it may well do, sadly, under Rishi Sunak as well, unless he changes tack. Uh, lots of heat there from Annalise Dodds, who asked whether they'd support, uh, Labour would support Rishi Sunak's uh, fiscal plans when they come before, before the Commons uh, next month. Uh, not a lot of light. Well, I've got Gabriel Pogan, the Sunday Times' Whitehall editor, in the studio with me, also author of uh, a book on the Labour Party, uh, Left Out, the inside story of Labour under Corbyn, uh, which he wrote with, uh, with somebody else who will remain uh, nameless. Uh, Gabriel, we both spend a lot of time, uh, you on a Sunday, me through the week, uh, following the Labour Party, uh, speaking to shadow cabinet ministers and people uh, around Keir Starmer, in the room with Keir Starmer. And I think it's fair to say we detect a mixture of um, excitement and trepidation. Because if you look at the polls, they tell one story, which is Labour uh, uh, sort of freewheeling towards the finish line in 2024. But beneath the surface, there is anxiety that, one, they've not quite worked out how to nail Rishi Sunak, and two, the big economic questions have yet to be answered either. I think that's right. I mean, um, obviously the clues in the name, Keir Starmer's leader of the opposition, he's paid to oppose and critique the government. But in some ways, he's now shifted the onus um, or, 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 you know, he's basically um, stated that he's going to be a government, his, his party will be a government in waiting. Um, so it's obviously incumbent on him to articulate what that means. And as you've outlined, he's been kind of conspicuously lacking in detail or a sort of economic perspective of his own. I, I was in the House of Commons last week speaking to Rachel Reeves, who, you know, to her credit, has done a, a fine job of neutralising the Labour brand in the eyes of the city. Um, she's, I think, uh, a, a far more consummate political performer than her predecessor, uh, whose clip you just played. But nevertheless, you know, when asked, well, what is it that you would cut or what taxes would you raise... You know, they are the ones leading into the household metaphor for public finances. They're saying we need to balance the books. Um, I, I think, um, you know, they've got a long way to go now in articulating exactly what it is that they would do. And I mean, just to, um, to riff for one more moment on this theme of, you know, op going from opposition to government in waiting. I mean, we learned a lot in Keir Starmer's first two years about who he was not. He's definitely not Jeremy Corbyn. Um He's sure as hell not Boris Johnson either. Um, and not being those two people was politically advantageous to him. But I think we are now um, in, in a de very different era where we do need to know a lot more about what he does represent. Because we know what Rishi Sunak represents to the Conservative Party in the country, which is fiscal rectitude. And in some respects, that's a tricky, that's a tricky wicket for Labour to play, isn't it? Because as you say, you ask them, well, hang on are you going to raise taxes or cut spending? And when Rishi Sunak proposes both of those things next month, are you going to support him or not? The answer comes uh, that, one, it's not a decision for the Labour Party to make, as Margaret Beckett told me uh, in the past 15 minutes or so. Um, but also, you know, when the, insofar as there is an answer, they say, well, we'll abolish non-dom status, that'll raise a couple of billion quid, and then we'll, and then you get some blather about green energy investment. I don't think it's necessarily clear, is it, that they've made that decision yet? Partly because it's a very politically painful choice for the Labour Party, as we saw in 2015. I wrote in the Times uh, last week that 2015, the Labour Party uh, promised to, uh, you know, cut as George Osborne was cutting, but slower. In 1997, Gordon Brown promised to uh, stick to Ken Clark's fiscal plans. It's always a tricky situation, isn't it, for the Labour Party to decide whether to deviate from. Uh, a Tory party's fiscal baseline uh, ahead of an election because uh, otherwise they can be pilloried 
as Labour opposition so often are, as spendthrift and reckless with the economy. That's right. I mean, uh, just to add to your list of things that Labour say they do, they give a lot of oxygen to this idea they would somehow claw back billions um, from these PPE contracts gone wrong. I mean, speak to a serious economist and they say that's, you know, the equivalent of looking for pennies down the back of the sofa. It's not going to plug a, you know, multi-billion pound uh, deficit or address our long-term debt to GDP issue. So as you say, I mean, you know, they have to start articulating what their position is going to be. And I think, I mean, it is much more comfortable for Labour to inhabit a world where you know, have Boris Johnson uh, making pepper the pig speeches to the CBI and a leader credited with saying F business um, or, 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 you know, Liz Truss presiding over a, a financial crisis. I mean, that is much safer terrain than Sunak coming in and, um, you know, reinitiating an era of austerity, which is obviously politically unpalatable. And I think, uh, you know, the last three years have attested to the fact that most Brits want a larger and more interventionist state and feel, um, you know, in, entitled to a degree of state protection. Um, so I don't think that, you know, the country is crying out for uh, the fiscal rectitude embodied by Sunak. But at the same time, um, I think that Labour could be caught in a difficult position of, again, kind of having to do something to the effect of constructive government, where they say, well, we'd probably do something similar, but maybe a bit different, but maybe in a slightly more Labour-style way. Well, it's a tricky question, certainly. Let's see what the public think. We can talk to Professor Sir John Curtis, uh, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University and Senior Research Fellow at NatSen, and also, of course, the legendary pollster. Good morning, John. Good morning to you. Um, We've just heard, we've just been talking about the questions Labour have to answer. But is this all, is this discussion academic? Have the public made up their minds that the Labour Party are more credible on all of these issues, including the economy, than the Conservatives? And is Rishi Sunak inevitably fighting a losing battle regardless of what Sir Keir Starmer says? Well, I think what we can say is the Labour Party are regarded as sufficiently acceptable uh, for the public that when, as is the case at the moment, they are deeply disenchanted with the Conservatives, it is to the Labour Party that they have turned. It has been quite remarkable, for example, that during the course of the last month, the support for Liberal Democrats has flatlined. If anything, it's eased very slightly. Indeed, even support for the Greens has gone down a bit. Labour have been the sole beneficiaries of the implosion of Conservative support. So while I would agree with a lot of what's just been said, and certainly um, it's not the case that there is the degree of enthusiasm for either Sir Keir Starmer in particular, or the Labour Party in general, that there was for Tony Blair and the Labour Party before the 1997 general election, um, they are good enough in the current circumstances uh, to find themselves at the end of Liz Truss's premiership with a 31-point lead. I mean, that said, um, Rishi Sunak is undoubtedly going to be a more formidable opponent than uh, Liz Truss ever was. The public have higher expectations of him. He is regarded more favourably, although he's not without his weaknesses. He's not regarded as somebody who is in touch. Um, uh, and though he, at the moment he's still, you know, doing less well on most of these metrics than uh, Sakir Starmer is. But, you know, Sakir Starmer is only just simply doing uh, moderately well. I think we can certainly anticipate, and there's already some evidence out there from a poll in red wall seats that was done after um, Mr Sunak became prime minister, 
that we're going to see a narrowing of the 31-point lead that we've had in the wake of Liz Truss's resignation. We're probably heading for something like a 20-point lead on average in the polls, but that would still be enough to generate a Labour overall majority. Should the Labour Party worry that Rishi Sunak is more popular than the Conservative Party, whose brand has taken a battering, of course, but do you think Rishi Sunak will be able to drag the Conservative brand out of the doldrums, or or is it? Does all the polling suggest it? It is uh, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty tarnished for the time being. Well, the truth is, on that, we're, we're to some degree we're in uncharted territory, in the sense that um, if you look at the history of what's happened to governments in the wake of fiscal crisis, including not least. Uh, the government of John Major in September 1992, when it uh, fell foul of the financial markets over the value of the pound inside the European exchange rate mechanism. That is a very uncomfortable history for Conservative MPs to read, because basically it says no government that uh, finds itself presiding over a fiscal or financial crisis manages to win at the next general election, and in particular John Major in 1997 and Gordon Brown in 2010, both presided over relatively heavy defeats. Um, But this is also the first time that a party has changed its leader in the wake of a fiscal crisis. So the Conservatives are undoubtedly hoping, and I think you can already see the way in which Rishi Sunak is is, uh, positioning himself. He's basically saying that I am not Liz Truss. That was a big mistake. I told people that's what was going to happen. Don't blame me. We're now going to do things differently. He is clearly hoping that he's going to be able to Mm. put distance between himself and his predecessor. In much the same way as Boris Johnson in the second half of 2019 was said, look, I am not Theresa May. I have got a Brexit deal. You can now vote for me because I can get Brexit done. I know my predecessor couldn't. Uh, And the question is, we've got no precedent there for knowing whether or not he can succeed or not. But certainly he will face a very considerable challenge because undoubtedly, you know, potential risk the Conservative Party simply faced. Well, you ask people, well, you know, about the Conservative Party, and you know, there's a bit of a smile, there's maybe a bit of a laugh, and they go, well, you know, these folk just cannot provide stable government. And it's whether or not the memory of the last four weeks just outlasts anything that Rishi Sunak can do in the next two years. Uh, that certainly is a risk. It's a very, very real risk. Um, but to be honest, we'll have to wait and see whether or not as a different prime minister, he can actually overcome the precedent of history. And that in turn will determine what Sir Keir Starmer can do and whether his current approach uh, is adequate or too cautious. That was Professor Sir John Curtis, uh, the polling expert, talking us through what the data says. Coming up, we're going to hear from a Labour MP, a minister in the Blair years, to find out what the Labour Party uh, need to do to replicate that success, if they can indeed uh, do so or have the tools at their disposal to do so. Should they consider copying the Tony Blair playbook to beat Rishi Sunak? Indeed, can they beat Rishi Sunak? Well, Labour MP Ben Bradshaw was a minister in the Blair years and indeed came in. He won the seat of Exeter in that landslide in 1997. He joins me on the line now. Good morning, Ben. Hello, Patrick. Um, We've been hearing this morning that Sir Keir Starmer, yes, is considerably ahead in the polls, but hasn't necessarily done everything. I think most people would say that is fair, even within the Labour Party, even as supporters, to prove that Labour are fully ready for government. Is now the time to uh, follow where Tony Blair left off? We know uh, that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown are advising Keir Starmer. Should he be copying that playbook, do you think? 
Well, I mean, history uh, never repeats itself in quite the same way. And of course, the challenges that we face now are uh, some of the same ones, like the state of the health service and public services generally, uh, but also they're very different. I mean, if there is an election and we were we to win, we'd inherit a, an economic situation far, far worse than the one we inherited in 1997. And I think Keir and his top team are well aware of that. And you've already been seeing, I think, in recent weeks and months, uh, a certain amount of expectation management. Uh, we already have the very strict fiscal rules that uh, um, Rachel Reeves has uh, uh, imposed on all of her fellow shadow uh, cabinet ministers. And I mean, that's very much like uh, where we were pre-97, where our what number one priority, uh, having um, lost the public's trust in the 70s, 80s, uh, on, on economic competence and having done so again extremely badly under Jeremy Corbyn have won that back and I think that along with uh, asserting his authority over the party has been uh, one of Keir's most important and significant achievements but I'm confident you're seeing more policy coming out I suspect you'll get a bit like pre-97 some iconic policies that uh, don't appear on the face of it to be terribly ambitious, but give the public an idea of how a Labour government would be different. And my hope would then be uh, that when we're in power, also like 97, we do a lot more. I mean, we did a heck of a lot more uh, in those uh, governments after 97 than we ever said we would in our 97 manifesto. And I think that if that's the kind of copying the playbook, then yes, I hope that's what happens. Um, just before I hand you over to Gabriel Pogan to ask you a question, Ben Bradshaw, I just want to update listeners on uh, an interesting development in the House of Commons, uh, where the Speaker has suspended the sitting until 12pm because Penny Morden, the Commons leader, hasn't turned up to her sitting of business questions. Unclear what's going on uh, there, uh, indeed, whether Penny Morden is is still in post. Who knows? I'm sure we'll find out uh, soon and we'll, of course, bring you all the latest. Uh, now, let's get back to the business of the Labour Party. Gabriel Pogand uh, from the Sunday Times. Uh, what's your question to Ben Bradshaw this morning? Ben, hi. Um, I, I just wanted to ask, Patrick and I were reflecting a few moments ago on just how different the threat uh, the... the uh, Rishi Sunak poses for Keir Starmer is from Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. I mean, on, um, you know, the kind of key issue of the day, fiscal conservatism, balancing the books, what is Labour's message? And moreover, how does it offer one which is clear and distinctive? Because, you know, the mood music emanating from the leadership is, you know, we can we can be trusted on the economy. We'll be even more fiscally responsive, responsible uh, than the Tories. Um, what does that mean? Um, how does the Labour Party do that without, uh, in, in effect, consenting to a, to a return to austerity? And what would you like to hear Keir Starmer say on that theme? Well, I heard your earlier chat and I actually, actually completely agreed with your, with your analysis. I mean, look, you know, as I, as I was just saying, we are going to inherit, if we win an election, a, a terrible economic situation. They're going to have to be very difficult and hard choices to be made. But I think that within uh, Rachel Reeves' fiscal rules, there's a lot more that we could do, both to boost growth and to deal with the economic problems and, f and fiscal problems we're going to face in a fairer way than the Conservatives. And we've already given some examples of that, and you named some in your, in your two-way with Patrick a few minutes ago. I suspect you'll see those fleshed out more. And I also think you were right when you and actually John Curtis as well highlighted polling that shows that the British public are not in the same place as they were um, post uh, global financial crash 
in 2010, when they sort of accepted the need for austerity. Uh, there, there are large majorities in all the public opinion polls that when asked whether they would rather see uh, more public spending cuts or tax increases, they would prefer the latter. Uh, obviously, uh, if that was the case, I think Labour has some wriggle room there to 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 uh, um, uh, go along with the grain of public opinion, but also to ensure that it's those with the broadest shoulders who who carry more of the burden and not working people who've been clobbered in the last few years when, of course, Rishi Sunak has been in government. And Ben, uh, Patrick Maguire again here. How aggressive do you think it's wise or prudent for the Labour Party to be when attacking Rishi Sunak? Because as John Curtis uh, was saying, uh, the, the party suggests that the public don't think he's in touch. But there, is there a risk of getting too personal if you're attacking the Prime Minister for his wealth? Or is it all fair game as far as you can see? I, I think it would be a mistake uh, to do that, although I have to say when Rishi Sunak himself tried to use that tired, tired old joke of Keir Starmer representing a seat in North London, it's actually pretty central London, uh, it, did, it did remind me that he has a five and a, five and a half million pound home in Kensington, the largest state in Yorkshire and a house in California. So I'm not sure those attacks the other way around are going to work for him. But I think the public know about Rishi Sunak uh, and his and his, uh, you know, his life. Uh, I don't think we need to remind them of that. No, I think it will be policy based. And I'm sure under Keir and his top team, it will be policy based. You won't get any of those silly uh, uh, sort of class war attacks that you saw from some of uh, Corbyn's acolytes in, in the years past. Is there a danger, too, of the mentality of one more heave creeping back into the Labour Party? Obviously, that was a big worry of people in your wing of the party uh, at the start of the 1992 Parliament. Would you caution colleagues who look at those polls like the ones we carry uh, for the Times uh, from YouGov that show 36-point leads, 39-point leads? Would you caution them not to look at those and think it's job done? Keir Starmer saying the same thing to the Shadow Cabinet. But do you think there is a risk people get get giddy on numbers like that? Of course. And I mean, I think the I mean, the, you know, the recent polls are sort of extraordinary and in some cases are unprecedented. But I think I think what's what's re- really reassuring to me is even among our membership, which has changed uh, enormously since the Corbyn years, that our members have become much more moderate uh, under Keir uh, as people have left and new people have, have joined. I can't remember who it was, Patrick, who who described uh, being uh, being in opposition with a poll lead is like carrying a extremely valuable Ming vase across a slippery mm. marble floor. It was Roy Jenkins, Roy uh, Jenkins. <laughs> it was Roy Jenkins. Well, Roy Jenkins, great hero of man, mine. Yes, I mean, that's exactly uh, the attitude I think we need to take. It doesn't mean that we uh, shouldn't uh, be radical in some ways. It doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't be prepared to take risks on some uh, policies. But I do think um, that, yes, any complacency, any idea that this is in the bag, any idea that it's just an, a, a political fact that after 10, 12 years, the public tire of the government, although I think there is to some extent that is happening. Uh, no, 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 no. We've got to we've got to we've got to seal the deal. We haven't done that yet. And it could be another two plus years, two or two or more years. Um, <laughs> I perished the thought uh, this government stumbling on that long. But I mean, it could be under our unwritten constitution. So, yeah, we have we still we're this is still a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, Gabriel, last word from you before we let Ben go. Um, I mean, I, I think you're quite right to note. I mean, to you know, if a week uh, is a long time in politics, uh, and, and that has uh, that cliche has obviously been um, vindicated in spectacular fashion um, on numerous occasions over the last six weeks. Um, you know, two 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 years is an eternity, and um, 
I think it's going to be really interesting just seeing how Starmer kind of adds flesh to the bone of his policy offering and and deals with with Sunak, who I think is, um, as John Curtis said, just a, a formidable opponent, very different kind of politician and um, far less exposed in the way that Boris Johnson and his trust were and kind of uncosted spending and borrowing, which is a uh, kind of key issue of the day. So, uh, yes, I, do, I, I mean, I, I, I see Labour rushing in to elaborating, fair enough. Uh, the media always want more. The public may not be as interested or deem it to be as urgent an issue, but um, I, I think the time is coming where we'll need some more answers. Well, Gabriel Pogrand, I think... I, that... I, I, agree, I agree with that. And if I just say one, one other thing, I mean, I, I don't think Rishi Sunak becoming Prime Minister changes the essential fact that the Conservatives are bitterly divided. And I don't see how he resolves that because they have very different views within the party and within government about how to deal with the, the economic situation and, and what their vision for a post-Brexit Britain is. Uh, that has been unresolved. It remains unresolved. And I think, uh, you know, that means we can't guarantee that they will they will survive another two plus years. Well, Ben Bradshaw, the Labour MP and former Cabinet Minister, thanks very much for joining us on Times Radio this morning. You also heard from Professor John Curtis, the legendary pollster. And joining me for the duration of that big thing, 11 o'clock, was Gabriel Pogren, Sunday Times Whitehall editor and co-author of Left Out, the inside story of Labour under Corbyn. Uh, with some bloke called Patrick Maguire. Thanks very much all for a very illuminating discussion on why Labour's poll lead is not all that it seems. That's all we've got time for on today's podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get yours from. <laughs> 